0: Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Steadicam inventor Garrett Brown, one of the great cinematic innovators. Brown was called upon to operate his new and revolutionary invention, the Steadicam, during the shooting of The Shining. Throughout the process, Brown gained valuable insights into Kubrick's meticulous and precise technical demands.
1: The way it came about was the original Steadicam demo. It consisted of 30 impossible shots that we made in and around Philadelphia to try and sell this notion in Hollywood. And I took that demo, which included, incidentally, uh, a, a shot running down the Art Museum steps and back up again, chasing my then girlfriend, now wife, Ellen. Um, took that film to Cinema Products Corporation and to Panavision and. L.A. and ended up with a deal almost immediately from Cinema Products. And mm-hmm. since Ed DiGiulio, the head of that company, had recently supplied the F.7 lenses to Stanley for um, Barry Lyndon to shoot the candlelight sequences, the ultra-fast right. lenses, right? he was on speaking terms with Stanley and sent him a film, 35 millimeter film copy of my demo. And Kubrick wired back a um, what has become legendary around our parts telex, saying that your you know demo your demo film on the mystery stabilizer is spectacular. You can count on me as a customer. Went on and on about it. He he actually startled us by saying, "I direct your attention to a part of the demo where a skilled counterintelligence photo observer can." detect a shadow of the object on the ground and deduce certain things about it. And of course of course, we were shocked. We rushed to the screening room and played it and sure enough there was about 18 frames of shadow that we had to cut out to not give away how it was done. Wow. And uh, then, he went, then he went on to say is there a minimum height at which it can be used? I'm guessing at this point that he had the, the shining in galleys and was contemplating filming it and I think saw ahead, amazingly, that he would, it would be better to have lens heights closer to the ground. So in response to that, we invented a variation on study cam, which is the camera flipped upside down, which we've called all these years low mode. Mm-hmm. A hell of a lot of the shining ended up in low mode. Uh, but I think he understood a couple of things by then that that it would be impossible for him to Make the floors and the overlook all good enough for dolly quality moves that's a hell of an enterprise, yeah uh, you know even leveling rail when you have absolutely precise rail involves a lot of wooden wedges and so on, and when they do dolly shots on on floor, typically even if it 's very carefully made, they usually lay down overlapping sheets of plywood at least to you know stop the because the dolly will show up any variation in the rain right and my stuff of course is immune to that so I think he had a strong incentive in any event to chase us and did
0: you know you've been a tremendous innovator in the motion picture industry and I'm sure as a lover of films you had uh, prior to meeting him you had a terrific appreciation of Mr. Kubrick's work because he had a a reputation similar to to, to yours Uh, I mean he, he really fostered technical innovation in, in the
1: film yeah i was a you know open mouth fan of kubrick i you know i sat in the front row at 2001 i you know i was enthralled with strange love and you know uh even was aware of him in the in the hazard glory days as a force you know? uh,
2: yeah
1: and it was i was a huge fan of barry linden of I got to The Shining. I mean, the the first films I shot, I actually shot in 1975. I started working for Stanley in 78 or 9, I guess. No, 79. Hmm. 78, late 78, fall 78. And went on over to 79, and I think the film came out in 80. Uh, But I had done, you know, Rocky, which won Best Picture, and Bound for Glory won Best Cinematography, and I had done. Yeah. Uh, Marathon Man, which is an amazingly well-made film, and uh, Mm. in each case was able to contribute some stuff that hadn't been seen before. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Rocky, of course, because the director of Rocky saw that demo film that I mentioned and saw that shot on the art art, art museum steps, found us and said, how the hell did you do that, and where are those steps, which is why that shot's in Rocky. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, but I would think that when you first go to meet Kubrick, and I know that I've read that you were first brought on as a consultant and later a permanent part of the team to to actually do the the shooting uh, and operate throughout the duration of the shoot. Um, what what were your uh, impressions of the man, and how did they run counter to what you were expecting of him?
1: Well, we we actually had the study cam in a camera show called Film 77 um, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, beforehand and that's when it was speculated that somebody you know, that I taught would be doing the operating at that point I didn't really want to be in England that long mm-hmm. but I had the rig in London at Film 77 and we had a we brought it over to um, Boreham Wood to Elstree Studios and Stanley had already commenced building sets and saw it and saw a demonstration of low mode, which we had worked up by then,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and asked if I wanted to do it. And um, I was pretty um, intrigued by that at that point and began to try and make that happen. I'm and, and glad I did. I actually really learned how to operate the thing on that film.
0: Yeah. Tell me about the process, his working process, because I understand he did not uh, storyboard necessarily. He let the scenes kind of evolve uh, on that day. Uh, tell, tell me about that working process.
1: I think that's a misconception. I mean, I think he had a very strong idea of the shots. Um, when if somebody says the work evolved on that day, it wasn't that the script changed very much, although right. there were the odd addition and subtraction. Um, it, wasn't, it, it had to do with the fact that we did so many takes of it that it occupied a full day. Almost every shot occupied a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original plan was that we would dash in, shoot the things, throw the gear on carts, rush off to another stage, which would be lit and ready, to another scene, and then all of us trundle along between stages and go back to a stage and do another thing. Practice, you know, we got bogged down by his desire to do it over and over again for for various reasons. Yeah, and um, we never—I don't think we almost very seldom did more than a shot or two in a day, and sometimes a shot would occupy several days. So, but it wasn't that the shot was evolving so much; it was just that we were climbing deeper and deeper into the possibilities you know not the operating got better and better although i think you know by any standard take five was good and take 14 was perfect but Mm -hmm. as you go on to take 50 and 70 you realize hey if my foot is two inches closer to this wall i can just see this and so on and so on. so there's a slight evolution in that regard the lighting was fixed the wardrobe was fixed the anything held on with Gaffer's tape would start to be falling off by take 50, you know. Uh, Yeah. And the actors, you know, delivered every nuance from apathy to hysteria so that he had it in the can for his editing. And I think that's what he really wanted. He wanted to be able to have a, um, you know, a uh, almost horn and hard art automat selection of every possible range of thespian emotion, you know.
0: Yeah. We've spoken to several actors who, who who performed under his direction, and and uh, they've described the process and what it did for, for their performances, and it is amazing. But and for you, I would think that this was just the heaven as as kind of a, a training ground to hone your skills on this on your terrific invention.
1: It was. I mean, I thought I was a hotshot when I got there, uh, but I I actually got better, and any any. You know, any act like that which resembles dance or, uh, you know, ballet or something like that improves over time up to a point. I know, I'm not sure acting improves over time because it's a different item, but repetition of, you know, muscle memory physical acts mm-hmm. get better and better and better and better. The best stuff I ever shot never ended up in the movie. There's a whole sequence in a hospital. on the picture and it was only in the film for the very first screening in New York and was cut out immediately
0: that was the closing scene wasn't it
1: it was and somebody made fun of it and it disappeared Uh, Mm.
0: so that's all of us that scene
1: (laughs) all of us had uh, you know a hell of a lot of respect for Stanley and we're you know also confounded by him in some ways I can't really take as entirely true anything any of us says about it because it's a mixture of all of those things. Yeah. Except me, of course. Everything everything I say is absolutely
0: true. Yeah. Tell me about the man, Kubrick, and your conversations with him, kind of apart from the film, because my understanding of him is that he was just fantastically interested in in everything, he had an insatiable curiosity.
1: Absolutely, and he was a, you know, a very quick study and had a very large ego about what he knew about things. Uh, he was a, a very good and crafty chess player. I never played chess with him, but I observed him playing with various people, including Tony Burton, who was an actor in this film, mm-hmm. um, which he would do from time to time. Um, but he was fiercely directed at, at the movie, couldn't be engaged in much else except did try to persuade me that the Concorde was unsafe because part of my deal involved numerous flights back and forth on the Concorde after they went beyond six months. So you know, with a kind of vicious glee, he would tell me about what this aeronautical engineering pal's latest opinion of the unsafeness of the Concorde. And you know, and you know had an opinion about nearly everything else. A lot of our efforts were directed at perfecting the cinematography. Uh, the technicalities of cinematography. We tested lenses incessantly. We we did you know elaborate heart tests, so called, for the exact plane of focus because he really wanted sharp sharp negatives. He had his projectors in the daily screening room rebuilt several times during the year so that there was you know perfect registration of the projectors. He mm. he called his own printing lights, so called, which is. The the formulas the lab uses to color correct. So if you saw the raw footage from in the maze, right? Mm -hmm. All the footage indoors in the maze. Even before the printing, so he had he had the medium completely in his hands. You know, mm-hmm. um, although we were never huge units, and there were very very few special effects. I don't think Stanley would have been happy in the special effects world we live in now, where effects are not done in camera very often. He loved the in camera stuff, and he was a master of it. Yeah
0: well i and you think about a lot of these gorgeous images from his films and you know I, I think about the the contribution of of mr alcott uh his dp on on several of his great films including including the shining um what what was what was your interaction and, and relationship with mr alcott throughout the shoot and your impressions of him
1: well john was uh was a great guy I you know he died way too soon um, and he but he and I you know I think we're both you know Stanley's servants in this matter you know we executed Stanley's vision um, I, I think John himself would have agreed that you know it, it wasn't his conception uh, he was the implementer as we all were That many filmmakers you would say that about. There are DPs that are really strong who, you know, even designed the shots and the moves. John contributed, certainly, but I think, you know, none of us would stand up before our maker and say that we were responsible for the look of that movie. Mm -hmm. We were were contributors, as was the art director and the the production designer, Roy Walker, and the costume designer, the great Milena Canyonero. Mm -hmm. All of us were marching to and was tuned
0: before I let you go i i I wanted to ask you about um, whether or not you had interactions with Mr. Kubrick b- beyond the shooting of the shining
1: uh, i I was his guest for dinner a couple of times at his house in uh, St Albans, and I suppose I was a friend of his in some ways i you know I, I helped him out with a few things that he wanted. In relating to that house and you know, and gave him my opinion and a bunch of things before we started. I actually really enjoyed working with him. He's one one of my favorite experiences, uh, and I admire him admired him then. I think that we're all poor the poorer for his untimely death at age seventy, which is way too bad. Yeah. I think Eyes Wide Shut was snatched up by the studio, you know, when Stanley died and they just grabbed the highest number Avid edit, you know, and ran off as if that was the movie, but it was three months before the you know, the film was due to be released. I don't think there's a chance that that was the movie he had in mind or the, the music track or a lot of other things. So mm. it's a great change because, you know, it's out there, but it doesn't feel to me like it's really his film. But altogether, I, you know, I, I cherish that interaction. I think I brought. In the end, something very valuable to the movie. I brought an unearthly, uh, smooth and menacing kind of motion to that that you couldn't have gotten any other way.
0: I, I, um, I can, You cannot imagine The Shining without without your incredible work in it. I mean, it's it was essentially designed designed around what you were capable of doing uh, with the steady cam.
1: I think I was lucky that you know that movie uh, came. Be produced at the time that it did. And I think in some way Stanley was lucky. He would have been, you write a different movie on the dolly, it would have been, you know, clunkier and klutzier and more more rigid and less yeah. of that fluidity, you know. And the, you, you can just try and imagine, Jamie, how much fun it was to execute those shots, you know, mm-hmm. or to sit in the dailies. You know, he, he, we would carpet each other. He would say to me, you know, he, he, he would use as an excuse to do another take, he wanted the crosshairs on her nose. Or, know, no other nose would do, you know, uh, but in fact, you know, I would joke, you know, when you're not printing the crosshairs, there, nobody in the theater is going to know whether they're on her nose or on, her, on the edge of her eye, was you know, <laughs> it was good, it was, really, it was really shocking, you know, it was a lonely experience for me, I was away for an awful long time, uh, mm. and, not, and a lot went on back here without me, unfortunately, I had to leave for couple of months to, or a month to do Rocky Two because that booking had been made and it was made well after the shining was supposed to be over and then came back and went back and forth on the Concord for the next six months so
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was a long uh, a long experience but it was great.